Hey everybody, welcome to The Round Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Mills. Now, in response to our last few episodes on why millennials are leaving church, or in some cases, faith altogether, I've had a chat this episode to someone who's in a unique position to comment. His name is Blake Ramage, and he himself is a millennial, only just, I think. Um, He's been employed by a church throughout his working life, as you'll hear, and he's seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he's chosen to stick with it throughout. He shares some amazing wisdom and advice on how he's seen the millennial generation from his perspective and and their relationship with church kind of evolve over time. Now, I've heard Blake talk many times. He's a great communicator, and one of the things I love about him is that he's really honest, maybe sometimes too honest. He's quite vulnerable with his own journey, and he shares about that, as you'll hear. And I think he represents someone who wants to see change, not through organizational structures necessarily, but through transparent relationships and community. So in this chat, one thing Blake talks about is this idealized romanticism of our age, how we believe that maybe we should be perfectly suited and compatible with a partner, like a Hollywood version of a relationship, like a fairy tale. And he compares this idea to how we might also feel about the church we go to and how as a millennial, maybe we think church or some religious setting that we're in should suit us and be convenient. So that's one of the things he touches on, plus many more. So enough of me, it was a fascinating chat, so let's crack into it. Could you maybe give us a little brief introduction about your view of the church, maybe as a young person growing up in the church, and how you were shaped by what you saw of the church and yeah, what that meant to you then? Sure, yeah. So basically I started in a Christian family in that my mum was Christian. She, uh, at a really early age, she had this kind of miraculous experience where she was healed of cancer effectively. And so as a result of that, she brought my brother and I up in a you know Christian family, but the rest of my family isn't Christian. So um, it was really mum. And we went along to this Pentecostal church for a number of years until kind of early teenage years when the pastor got involved in some things he shouldn't have and kind of the whole thing blew up in a, in a scandal. That was a really interesting experience actually to have quite early. And at the time, a lot of the church members dispersed from that and some kind of lost their faith, if you like. And maybe it was an immunity injection for me or something because I didn't see it as the whole kind of faith had melted down. I just, saw this, I just thought this guy had been a bit of a dick. Um, so it was just a slightly different view on it. But, you know, there was kind of quite a strong Pentecostal element to it. Uh, And over the kind of my latter teenage years, I didn't really involve, I kind of went along to a local church that wasn't remarkable in any way. It was just the local church and had a great group of friends that were Christian and they kind of were my community and they were the people that I discussed faith with and shared things with and asked questions of and all of that kind of stuff. And we kind of did our, our journey together. Uh, And then at the end of my school years, I was trying to work out what to do with my life. and I didn't really know what to do at all. So, uh, but but I I was thinking of doing a gap year, but I wasn't sure. And in my seventh form year, I had this uh, picture of the local Anglican youth pastors. I had his face in my head, stuck in my head. And if you'd seen this guy, it's not a picture you want forever, right? So 
I was like, how do I get rid of this situation? And it was weird because it was keeping me up at night. Like I just couldn't get this guy out of my brain and I'd only seen him a few times. So I thought, I don't know what to do. Maybe this is God solving my crisis about what I'm gonna do next year. So I went and met with this, I caught up for coffee and I just said, hey, this is so weird. I didn't tell him about the, him being in my head or anything like that. I just said, this is, this is weird and not that way. Uh, this is weird and, and kind of, I feel that maybe next year I should spend my first year doing something. It might be doing the grounds, it might be doing some painting, I don't maintenance, whatever you've got. I mean, I'm a useless painter, but whatever, whatever you kind of need for next year, I'm happy to be involved. And he said, oh, look, I literally, like a week ago, I thought of this idea of having a youth intern next year. So would you like to give that a crack? And I thought, yeah, okay, why not? And um, then so I, I, I joined the team. He actually had a breakdown two months after that, which I'm not associating directly with me coming on board. Uh, so <laughs> hopefully, anyway. Um, but he, he kind of had a breakdown and then I, I kind of was in neck deep at that point because there were all these young people and I was trying to help them out. I was 18, I didn't really know what I was doing at all. So it was quite a major transition moment and a new youth uh, worker came in but I formed quite a great relationship with the vicar and he was so different to anything I'd experienced before because he, he knew about this thing called theology and it like blew my mind. He, he just had a whole different way of viewing the Bible uh, and uh, he had all this kind of knowledge about history, how the church had developed over the years, all of these kinds of things and that kind of set me on a new course in terms of my understanding of the church and my understanding of my own faith even. And long story short, went through some training, um, led a couple of churches and have been an assistant of a couple of churches as I am today. So, and I've seen kind of everything, well, probably most things anyway, um, good, bad and ugly. Uh, seen the very worst of the church and the very best of the church and all the, all the kind of colors in between. People talk about the church as being like the church, but they're generally referring to a building or a group of people that they associate that meet in that building. But what's another way to understand the church in terms of maybe more of a theological, like you're saying, like a deeper meaning to the church question? It's a, it's a, I think it's a really important question because when we talk about key terms, we often don't define them. So you might say, you know, someone might say the church and they're thinking about a church or a church building or a location or a service even, uh, like a kind of particular Christian service. And I don't kind of think of it like that anymore. Probably once upon a time I did feel like that. But I basically see it as part of God's wider plan throughout the kind of scripture narrative of that there's a garden where God creates and he has these image-bearing creatures called humans that reflect his image to the world that are part of co-creating, if you like, with God, that walk in relationship with God. And then there's a process by which that disintegrates and they walk away from that, that process. And then God and the gospel writers basically try and mirror Genesis, what happens in Genesis. So three of the gospel authors basically start the same way that in, in a similar way to what Genesis does. And, um, and even we see, you know, during the resurrection, there's a garden, you know, the women are, are there in the, in the garden. There's this whole sense that a new creation is kicked off again and that um, God is starting this new creation again in a, in a new way uh, by making Jesus Lord. And that those that kind of um, put their faith in him, and faith is another term that's hard to define, but those that put their faith in him are up for both looking to reflect God's image to the world in a fresh way again and restoring this world as God intended it to be, they are the people of God, otherwise known as the church. 
And uh, part of that, being the people of God, is gathering to worship God as the, as the kind of, um, as a key part of that, because we're um, learning to reflect God and be in his um, presence, if you like, in a, in a dedicated way. I'm worshiping you, but then go into the world and look to restore it and look to do that together as, as a group of people. And I think the third purpose of the church being those people who are the people of God is to encourage each other and to support each other and to pray for each other and to look out for each other. So I don't mean a worship, like a worship service, and I mean it much more broadly than that. In your time as a minister, Reverend, what are some kind of reasons you've seen for why millennials especially, harking back to our last episode, but why do people get so frustrated with the church? Why are they leaving particularly now in such large numbers that we've seen? What are some of the main things you've seen from your position? Millennials are leaving the church in the Western church, like in the African church and other churches, they're, they're not leaving the church. So it's either it reflects something of the Western church or, or Western culture, I think. From my own experience of what I've seen, there's, there's a sense, there's a few different things. There's one is the, we want the, we want the entity, whatever it is, we, be, we believe in authenticity. So we want it to be pure. Like we want the church, the ideal version of the church, and we want the pure version. And as soon as we see a piece that isn't, it kind of uh, affects us in some way. Like it's not, in some way, it's not the real deal anymore. Or likewise, we may have a piece of our lives that doesn't sit consistently with the church. And so because, again, that authenticity thing, we don't feel we can turn up and be part of that because part of us knows that we're not being authentic to ourselves. I think pair that with kind of a, sometimes a mistrust of authority um, and, a, and a kind of just a natural inclination to distrust uh, authority. And I also think, um, I saw this video recently of a guy called, and I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Alain uh, de Botton. He's a Sw Swiss-British philosopher, and he's talking about love, and I think it's an, he made a really interesting point. He's talking about the impact of the uh, romantic era, romanticism, on the way that millennials approach relationships. So we have a Hollywood version of love, you know, sold to us about what an idealized relationship will look like and how amazing and incredible and all of these things it will really be. And he, he uses this phrase that we go into a relationship thinking that, um, that we need the person to be compatible with us in order for us to love them. Whereas he said that the compatibility is often the product of love, that it's through work and it's through time and it's through relating and it's through, it's that that creates compatibility. It doesn't start there from the beginning. And we can have a long list of prerequisites for the person we want to date. And if they don't fit up to this and the relationship doesn't fit up to this romantic ideal we have, then all of a sudden it's like we can't, we can't actually participate in it at all. And I think at some level we've got that kind of idea with the church as well that it's this particular idealized thing. And as soon as we realize, and sure enough we do because it is not perfect, as soon as we realize it's not perfect, it's not holding up kind of what we, we hope it will, it's like we uh, withdraw from it. And, and also the sense of compatibility. We think, you know, turning up to a gathering, like a service, for example, that it needs to be compatible with us for us to be, a for us to be in relationship with that service. It's kind of like the me church, right? It's got to like cater directly to me. That's right. It's like, it's the same, it's almost the same approach. Tinder for churches maybe or something, you swipe for the right church. I don't know. If it's not the right, uh, if it's not compatible with me, then I won't go. And that's an interesting phenomenon as well. So some could say that that's just like millennials being like flaky 
But do you think it's maybe a, a reflection maybe on our on the broader culture that has so much to give us at our fingertips with YouTube clips? You know, you can just order Uber Eats or whatever. Everything is like immediate. Yeah. So do, do you think we just kind of carry that cultural narrative of how we've been brought up into church? Yeah, and I don't think, like I'm not, I don't think, like all of these things are reflections on on what's happening around us. It's not to say those millennials, you know, with their Uber Eats, it's, that's just what the reality is. But probably one of the biggest inventions that's changed the nature of the church is the invention of the car. Because beforehand, you had a local church that was the church you went to. And if you didn't like it, you had quite a long walk to the next local church, you know, in another village that was someone else's local church. And what it did is it forced everyone into, it forced everyone in the village, the people that were having a fight, the people that didn't get on, the people that don't agree with this style of music, the people that don't, don't do this, the people that, like it forced everyone into the same room to be church together. And when you think about all the imagery in scripture, you hear the body of Christ with different parts and you hear, you know, like the worst thing we can get is kind of a just, you know, if church just looks like everyone's the same and thinks the same and is the same, that's, that's almost worst case scenario because that's not what, that's not what any of the pictures say that we see in, in scripture, but also it's not, um, the, the church is broad and vast and multinational and international and, and um, it's, it's got all sorts of different um, cultures and people and ages and, and life stages and all of this and that's all in together. Uh, and, have, and, and people have to make it work in that, they have to build relationships, they have to do the hard work. Whereas in our uh, contemporary context, as soon as it gets a bit hard, when, the, when it gets a bit, uh, you know, when the relationships get pushy or we don't like something or our preferences change, we can just drive to the next church, you know what I mean? But I don't think it's flaky because I think we, we also really crave great relationships. And we crave, as millennials, we crave honest, vulnerable, real relationship. And in the kind of messy business of learning how to be human as God would want us to be and to reflect God's image to the world, that's a process that requires other people. I mean, even in the, the, the very essence of God, the Trinity is relationship, you know, and we are basically created for relationship with God and with others. And it's just almost, I would say, impossible to do, to maintain that sense of reflecting God to the world and, and rejuvenating the world as Christ calls us to without being in relationship to other people who share that view of what God's activity is all about. And I think that's where the rubber hits the road when you actually have to do life with a group of people. You're going to have clashes where people aren't going to view things the same way as you. Do you have any personal stories of how you've seen that really work really well in a community of people that are really diverse and different? Yeah, I think one of the, the great stories, I guess, of seeing all of that uh, play out is in, uh, when I was uh, led a church in Gisborne. And it, and it is more like a local church feel. You do have people who walk to church. It's like New Zealand was in the 1950s. And it had all sorts of different uh, people involved and people that you just wouldn't expect. Uh, I was telling a couple of stories in church a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one, my uh, the guy who was head, heading up our music department was like the, the most unlikely guy to lead a music department in history. You know, he is this um, amazing guy, but he was, uh, he played the cornet what person played the cornet and led a music? Uh, I don't know. But anyway, he was in his 70s and he's basically a mute. So he hardly did any talking. So I'd have these hour long sessions with him and I would just do all, really all the talking. And he, but he was such a caring, loving guy and gathered up 
and I don't know quite how he did it, he would like go and visit people in their homes, he gathered up this diverse choir that would turn up and really none of them could sing, but that wasn't the point. Uh, or, and it, across ethnicity, across ages, across all these different things, people who felt really connected and came together on a weekly basis and they had food together and all of this and they gathered around this key thing of worshipping together effectively. Um, I've also seen some great moments like in that same place um, there was this lady I took uh, that wasn't part of the church, I took her mother's funeral and the church really gathered around her, even though she wasn't, she had no contact with, with the church, gathered around her, supported her, cared for her, looked after her. And she ended up being part of that community. And then it was amazing because she, she gained this whole new family of people that cared for her. But then when tragedy struck for someone else, she then went to the party and supported and cooked and did all of these kinds of things. And, and I was just like, well, this is a, actually an amazing expression of the community working well. And even recently, uh, there was a lady who um, has two children, and uh, young school-aged children, and her, her husband died, and tragically. And in half a day, I had 12 people that were gonna cook for, for her to get her through that, that period. And someone went and filled up all the lunches for the kids for the next few weeks, filled the freezer, like did all of these, people were dropping meals around supporting and loving and caring for this person that wasn't even part of that community, but being part of rejuvenating, you know, of healing the world, which we're called to through Jesus, that's what, that's some of the best expressions I've seen. And do you think maybe at the birth of the church, the early church, that was kind of the point maybe, that it was to gather around a group of misfits and people that weren't alike, but to gather them together and do stuff? Or was it about growing and becoming a political uh, movement? It was never about being a political movement. So the way of the church has always been to serve. Like, and if you look at the way the Roman Empire actually was overthrown, it wasn't through Christians taking up arms. This guy called Rodney Stark wrote this book called The Rise of Christianity, and he basically talks about how uh, there was this period in the Roman Empire where the plagues went through and millions of people died, and it was a really tragic time and people were throwing family members out onto the street they, because they didn't know what the plague was all about. It was contagious, so many people were dying. But the Christians decided to not flee the city as so many others were and to stay and to serve the people who had the plague. And what they actually found was by keeping these people warm, by giving them food and water, there was a much higher chance of um, survival. Uh, and after that period, the people who had survived the plague now and Christians died doing this, helping, helping others. And people looked around and said, you know, who, who were the ones that actually helped us through this? It was the Christians. But we had persecuted the Christians. We had tortured the Christians. We had done terrible things to the Christians. So it wasn't a power grab by Christians. It was the fact that they had stayed and they had sacrificed their lives and they had served. Even the, the, in -care, the idea of an in-care hospital where you go to a hospital and receive care is a Christian invention. It happened uh, after the Council of Nicaea in 325 um, AD. And basically after that, that council, and this is the bit you don't hear, made the decision that in every um, town that had a cathedral, there'd also be an in-care hospital, which was this kind of new thing where people could gather and Christians could care for people in one place. So the, you know, hospitals, that we have today are a Christian invention. And so I could list so many other examples of where Christians have been a part of changing the world, bringing about God's healing and God's life and God's love through service and sacrifice. And that's a key idea that we 
uh, don't hear a lot of in our society uh, with the kind of me generation you've talked about, we don't hear that term a lot. What does it mean to sacrifice myself? What does it mean to serve? What, it, what does it mean to put my interests aside? What does it mean to give up um, my life for someone else's life in a really practical and profound way as an expression of wanting to see God's image reflected to the world? Do you think those early hospitals, you would have needed like insurance to get in? Yeah, probably, <laughs> especially the American one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned before this idea that uh, church is a place where vulnerability can kind of happen. People can be honest and get to know each other well. Do you think maybe in our culture, the Kiwi culture, we're particularly bad or we, we just kind of struggle with being vulnerable, especially guys, I would say. Um, in terms of opening up and sharing and being honest with each other. Do you think the church should be a place where that should be kind of encouraged and brought about in a better way than it maybe does naturally? Yeah, 100%. And one of the, uh, one of the, the struggles of the church is that sometimes we've reduced Christianity to like a moral, like just a set of moral tick boxes. Um, so anytime I've been on Ponsonby Road, a long room or something like that, and someone's asked me what I, what I do, which is always a great question. They're just a random I'm chatting to, um, and they literally cannot believe what I say next. Um, the, 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 the first question is, you know, so you can't have sex, right? You know, that's the first question, and or you're, you're not going to smoke with me right now, are you? Obviously. And there's kind of the world's view of Christianity is really narrowly defined to a set of moral rules and the, what, what the disciples in the early church was about was pointing towards people towards Jesus and part of the dissonance we can sometimes feel is that people see people in the church and, and realize that their lives aren't perfect. They see leaders and realize their lives aren't perfect but the point of Christianity is not to point out the church towards ourselves, it's to point people towards God, to worship God and to try and go about changing the world to, together. So vulnerability is absolutely crucial to that because in the early church, they talked about even, and they used this language, confessing your sins to each other. So that doesn't mean the person confessing their sins is turfed out of the church. It's a process by which we all want to learn to be open uh, and vulnerable and, and care for each other as we all try and better reflect Jesus and point people towards Jesus, not, uh, not towards uh, ourselves. I've heard it talked about like there are these two kind of crises that people go through. You either have like this crisis of kind of personal sin or shame or stuff you've got to deal with. And I guess the church has been seen to have some pretty hard lines on that. But there's also other crises of bigger questions of what's my purpose? Like what am I doing here? Existential kind of questions of what does it all mean? And the church maybe, in my experience, maybe hasn't been as good at dealing with those sorts of crises as people were wanting to deconstruct and throw things out of, you know, what they actually believe to try and get to the core of it. Yeah. Um, have, you, have you seen the church being able to address those bigger questions well? Well, I think one of the key, key things in any um, context is learning to, to, you know, love one another. And I have friends that have gone through, and I, to, you know, there's been parts of my faith that have gone through a process like that as well. But very close friends who have gone through a real deconstruction phase and um, I've wanted to hear that story and wanted to journey you know, with them and not to try and influence them, but to genuinely hear what's going on and, and respond to, to, to what's going on in, in their life. And I think that oh, there's actually a fascinating little bit in Matthew, um, the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, where there's the resurrection appearance of Jesus. So this is the grand moment of the gospel, like the, 
the moment. Jesus appears resurrected. And then in Matthew 28, so and he appears resurrected to the disciples. And it said, many believed, but some doubted. Hold on a sec. Many believed, but some... This is the resurrection appearance of Jesus. And in Matthew 28, it said, some doubted. Now, that's a fascinating thing to say. And it's fascinating. If you're making that up, if you're writing a fairy tale, you'd never say, we all saw Je You'd never say, we all saw him, but some of us didn't think it was him. Would you? <laughs> you just wouldn't say that. So this is people reflecting on an honest account that here Jesus stood before them, and some doubted. So, and right the way through the Gospels, you see people wrestling. People are re we're all real people, and the Gospel is written to real people. The disciples go through all of this journey. Peter, who's you know, so close to Jesus and yet denies him, and yet is then restored. Like people, there's such a rich history. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. So the con de deconstructionism that, um, that kind of a, a number of people, and millennials particularly, are going through uh, is, is not a new thing. Uh, maybe it's framed in a new way because of our context and our culture and all of that. But people have always asked, asked questions and people have always, and I'd also just, to, sorry, just a tangent, but what kind of belief is our faith? Is it like, I, I tell you there's a car outside and you can believe me or not, right? And then you can walk outside and see whether there's a car there or not. What kind, of, is that what our faith in Jesus is? Is, is that a kind of belief we're talking about. And I think it's less that kind of statement and more, uh, though we're still talking about historical events and we're still talking about grappling with the real reality of the world, if you like, but it's more like, I think, being in love. The idea that your heart, John Wesley talks about your heart being warmed to something. It's less about a mechanical situation of adding up some figures and coming to a conclusion with science and all of that kind of thing, and more a sense of, I can't tell you why I'm in love with someone. I can just tell you that I am. And I can't, I, they don't necessarily fit all the boxes. They don't necessarily, they're not the idealized person, but somehow, you know, and that to me is more the nature of faith. And that's why often the church talks about it as being called and God revealing himself and people being drawn rather than, and without all the, like it's like a puzzle and often we've got like quite a few bits and pieces of it, but there's a lot of pieces missing. Mm. And the vulnerability integrity part of it is actually saying a lot of pieces are missing, but I'm still, I'm not going to throw away the whole puzzle. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect. So what you're kind of saying is people are grappling maybe with like, is creationism real? Like kind of the, like the core, these core things that they thought was, you know, the Bible is yeah. inerrant, is sure. that the word? And, and they're kind of deconstructing some of that. But, yeah. but what you're saying is that at the core of it, it's actually a mystery and that if you go deeper, there's like this nuanced kind of underlying uh, base note. We don't have to get caught up in the nitty gritty kind of little details so much. Yeah, I mean, Paul himself says we're staring kind of through the veil dimly or whatever he says, through the reflection dimly. There's, there is a sense that there's mystery here. There is a, you know, the church would claim there's a historical Jesus and that God was, is about recreating the world through this Jesus. But I think partly, again, this wanting a purity of, of, of identity before we can accept the whole. Like, and when people realise creationism is probably wrong, you know, and people realise, you know, all sorts of bits, of, and we're sold growing up a prosperous life, and we're sold this great thing and this great thing if we just follow God right, and we've followed the, you know, the plan for our life, Jeremiah 29 11, that everyone's heard, I'll 
bless you and prosper you and all these things, pl plans to bring you hope in the future. We sold something and then it doesn't work out like that and then we don't really know how to make sense of it and so the whole thing starts to, to, to really crumble and th that's why I'd say sometimes we don't, I don't have all the pieces in the puzzle. Uh, a very famous author, and I don't know the exact percentage, so I'm just going to make one up, but it's roughly right. Um, and as a millennial, I can get away with that, right? Um, <laughs> but he said something like, I, I think it was actually N.T. Wright, and he, the percentage, just give or take, uh, he said something like, I, I, you know, at best I'm 60% right on most of what I write. So 60% right. And he d does so much study, so much all of this, and A, the humility of saying that, but B, this amazing theologian saying, I'm probably at best 60% right, really sp speaks to the fact that it's important to, I think, be sure of what we believe and whatever that, that may be. But I also think there's a humility in saying, I don't, I don't need the whole puzzle, but I can have some pieces, but I won't throw away the picture. Yeah. I like the idea that Christianity and church is meant to be there for people that are really kind of on the, on the fringes, on the down and out, people that are hurting. Do you think that there is something special about uh, getting to a place of maybe our own inner struggle or hurt and exposing that for what it is and then kind of meeting God there? I, I've heard people talk about it as being kind of a, a liminal space where, you, you know, in those times of hardship, that's when you can be closest to God. Have you seen that in and you're kind of dealing with the church and people in those hard times, is that when they can really meet God? Yeah, I think so. And I think sometimes in my own life, when I felt furthest from God, is sometimes where I've been in situations that have been really, really tough for me, that I've discovered, you know, we talk a lot about grace, and that's this whole thing that we're in of discovery is actually totally underpinned by grace. And in some moments when I can't even, I haven't even been, I've gone through periods where I can't even pray, can't pray anything, just can't, can't get the words out. I remember one time I was, uh, when I was going through something quite traumatic, I decided to drive to Tauranga to see my family and I thought, I'm going to set myself a target to do one prayer, because I've got to get myself back on track here. I'll do one prayer between Auckland and Tauranga. And I'm not going to play any music, because I like listening to music as I go down, until I do that one prayer. It's like a reward. And I just sat in silence the entire car trip because I couldn't do it until I got just outside of Tauranga and then I just said, just stick with me or something like that. That's all I said. Or bear with me as I, just stick with me as I kind of work this out. And I did feel a real sense of God meeting me even there, like just, just the, the tiny fraction I could do. I couldn't do the rest, but I could do that. And that God met me in that place. And the great promise of scripture is not that we'll get a great house, not that we'll get an amazing partner, not that we'll get the job that we've always dreamed of if we just follow Jesus. You know, that's not the promise of scripture. The promise of scripture is that God is with us and that whatever we face, God is with us, that God never leaves us no matter what happens, no matter what we go through. Um, Jesus' very name, Emmanuel, God is with us uh, through whatever, through whatever. And that uh, is an amazing thing. Even when we feel that we... Uh, go through all sorts of bits and pieces and withdraw from God. That's been awesome and maybe just one last question to finish. What do you think your vision for the church is now uh, in your position and what do you kind of hope for it to be in the future especially with like our younger generation, the millennials and then the generation behind us like coming through. What do you hope to see in 20 years, 30 years? 
I mean, I believe really strongly in every member, every member being in, you know, in on helping reshape the world. I think that's the call. And I would love to see churches that have at their very heart self-sacrificing love, like self-giving love, that we uh, learn what it means to, to, to spend ourselves on behalf of the world. And that's, I mean, meeting here is an amazing place to do that, Crave is doing exactly that. So many places are doing exactly that, that we go out into our world around us, into the community, and we, we, we gather for worship, we're encouraged, where we um, uh, learn to um, worship God and to reflect his image and go into the world and be God's hands and feet. The body of Christ is because God has chosen to use the church to change the world. That's the great hope of the world, is the church being the body of Christ. And I would love to see a real hands-on approach. And I think it would sit well with millennials as well, a practical, that's where it counts as an action, and that's where I'd love to see the church take a real, you know, hard tack towards, you know, as the early church did, be behind the hospitals, behind the, the least and the lowest, which is who Christ came to serve himself. And that's going to cost us something, isn't it? That is going to be cost, costly, but I reckon millennials are up for it because, uh, because it's the real deal. Yeah, I would just add at the end, like, you know, people talk about being hurt by the church or people talk about being, you know, it's good, good, good things from the church or bad things from the church. You know, we are the church, so you are the church. And so, say, for example, you turned up on a Sunday and you're having a bad day, you know, um, you've just had an annoying phone call with someone or something, something, and you're just sitting there, you don't want to be disturbed. Someone sits next to you and you just don't have any energy to talk to them at all. So they're sitting there, no energy to talk to them. It's their first time at church, but you don't know that. And based on your interaction with them, they go away and think, well, the church isn't very friendly. You know, just as unfair as that kind of is, that's what we do a lot. Like we, people talk about being hurt by the church, but it's a person, you know, and I, I as a minister, unfortunately have hurt people. And I, I've, you know, like, and I've had apologies to say, and, and I probably have hurt people I haven't even realized. And for I'm, I'm, in, I'm an imperfect human being and I, I will hurt people just as you're imperfect and you'll hurt people, but you are just as much the church as any church leader. And every person that's involved in this thing is the church. Does that make sense? So it's getting beyond the church as some entity over the rainbow that, when, that we just can talk about in abstract, like the church, like a physical building didn't have a transformation into a physical person and then beat us or something. Like, it's not like that. It's, it's the people, but people are imperfect. So it's, it's getting a sense that, um, that, that it, won't, it isn't going to be a perfect experience, that the purity of the experience that we're hoping for um, may not be there, and, yet, and it may not be compatible with us. And yet, for some reason, God has chosen the church to change the world and invites us in on that journey. Kind of reminded me of that saying, um, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Yeah. Churches don't hurt people, but people hurt people. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's great, man. I think that should be a that that should should be be our tagline. tagline yeah, right yeah. Yeah. So this is a question from the audience. For people that have been hurt by the church and they've thrown everything out, maybe going through some kind of deconstruction, for them it can be a huge loss. Do you have any advice for those people when they find themselves in this kind of wilderness type experience where they're searching for something new but maybe they only know what they're running away from, but not necessarily what they're looking for. Yeah, and I also don't want to diminish the fact that hurt from people in the church is really substantial, because part of us thinks 
I mean, one guy once said to me, if you can't live this out, what hope is there for anyone else? You know, because basically the idea that if we pay you, surely you can live this thing, you know? <laughs> and the rest of, no one else can, but if, if someone's paid to do it, then surely they can. You know, that's the kind of idea that I got from him. And, and we, at, at heart, kind of have the sense that if this thing works, then it should result in behavior that is kind and loving and caring and all of this. Um, and there's just the tension in people's lives in which we are all on that journey towards wholeness, towards being truly human that Jesus calls us to be, but with the realization that we, we are also imperfect and make real, real mistakes. But in terms of a practical point, I would say it's critical to maintain the relationships with those who they trust and feel cared for by uh, and to continue. And it might be that that process is one of catching up every couple of weeks with some key friends who either know about the experience or can ask questions and to delve into those deep questions to kind of stay linked in community, which is, it's just, as soon as someone goes off by themselves, it's really tough to, it's really, really hard. I think the first step is a small group of caring, but, but still to ask the big questions and still to be reflecting and still to be praying for each other, supporting each other. I think that's really important. And then seeing where that goes. I don't think you can force these things. Yeah, I don't think you can force them. So, so one last question from the audience. There's so many different flavors and denominations of churches out there. Do you think that's the reflection of the way that God's made us with our individuality and our differences that makes us unique? Or is it more of a reflection of our society and that we can just pick what works for us? Um, I think basically using the analogy of the body again, the idea, the idea with every church is that it's ideal to stay in connection with other churches. The body of Christ is of, very, of many different parts and individual churches sometimes play a particular role, like they may have a particular mission in the world. And right in the New Testament, we see different callings on different people. So it's not just the same thing. Different people do have different callings and some churches have a particular calling for a certain thing. And that may be that they're like the foot and the body of Christ, if you like. But it's important to be relating to the other parts of the body in the city and then that city relating to other parts in the country and the world um, that we we all play a role but and and the counter as well is always to be like the foot you know one particular expression not saying well we are the whole body and we we don't need the eye you know so would you say it's quite dangerous if you kind of silo yourself off to be this church that is quite separate yeah. That that's kind of maybe a danger sign. Terrible danger sign because it's also quite arrogant, isn't it? Yeah. Like because it's saying that this little group, whatever it is, and it was little in comparison to whatever, this little group um, somehow doesn't need to be connected to all the other parts. I mean, there's been times in the church's history where there has need to be, for one of a better reformation. Yeah. But reformers never wanted to split the church. Like Martin Luther actually never wanted to split the church. That was the last thing he wanted to do. He actually did everything he could not to. But unfortunately at the time, uh, he, was, he was basically forced out and, and so began a, re a reformation. But then, you know, and this is where time can be a funny thing. The Catholic Church responded to the reformation with Vatican II. And if they had done Vatican II in Martin Luther's day, there probably wouldn't be a reformed church. So it's just funny how it all works. But in that picture of, that grand picture of restoration, God somehow picks up all the strands and uses it for good and for, for, to be part of that new creation. Thanks very much, man. Hey, man. Cool. That's awesome. Good